Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest and greatest episode of Inside the Hexagon. I am your host, as always, Phil Lanities, and this is the penultimate episode of this podcast. This is the final fighter interview, and it is with Ryan Couture, the son of the natural Randy Couture, the UFC legend. Ryan carved out a very, very solid career in his own right with runs within Strike Force, within the UFC, and within Bellator. Uh, so we talk about what got him into MMA, you know, all the pressure and you know expectations that might have come along with being the son of Randy Couture and how he handled that and how it really honestly didn't sound like it affected him too much as far as getting into the sport. Uh, but we mostly focus on what his final strike force fight. He had a good run with the promotion, went six and one. And then he takes on KJ Nunes, a former world champion, in a very hotly contested, bloody uh, slugfest of an affair. Uh, so we talk about all of that. It's a really, really interesting chat. So without further ado, let's get to it. All right, on the line with us, we have the longtime strike force UFC Bellator vet and the guy that runs Extreme Couture. Ryan Couture, Ryan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to great to connect with you. I, I'm looking forward to this. This is uh, just for context. This is our last fighter interview that we're doing as part of this podcast. We've been walking through uh, the history of Strike Force, and we're down to the final event. And you competed on the final card, and you know you were a part of Strike Force uh, for the last you know year or so there at the end, and, and had several fights, seven fights with the promotion. So thought we'd connect and, and talk about your, your experience with the promotion. So thanks for taking the time to be on the show. I appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Looking forward to talking about the good old pace. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's, uh, that's, that's been kind of the, the thread through a lot of these fighter interviews and, and talking with Scott Coker and Javier Mendez. And some of them is that strike force was the good old days. It was fun. You know, that was when MMA was a lot of fun and not saying that it's you know, I don't, I don't want to be all oh, we're the, the grizzled old vets that just talk about how good the glory days and how good it used to be. But uh, in a lot of ways, a lot of us felt that way. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm a huge pride fan. I loved, loved, loved pride. But to me, strike force, I worked for the promotion for a while. I'm from the Bay area. It was my home promotion. So I was there at the last strike force kickboxing event headlined uh, by uh, uh, Kung Lee. And then I was there at the very first strike force MMA event and went to a bunch of events and then, you know, ended up working for the promotion for a while. So I, I, it's, it's got a play, you know, it's near and dear to my heart, got a special place in my heart. And that's what I hear from everybody where they, you know, whether it's Frank Shamrock, Kung Lee guys that had success in the UFC or had success in Bellator later on or whatever, everybody says it was just such a great time and so much fun. So I'm um, so glad we had to kind of cut this up, but let's talk about kind of your formative years. You grew up in Washington state, wrestled in high school. You did very well for yourself. Went to the university of Washington, obtained a degree in mathematics. I, I, I got to say, you're probably one of a very small handful of MMA fighters that have a degree <laughs> in mathematics, but I'm sure that serves you well in, in your, your current role running extreme couture. But uh, of course, and I'm, I'm sure that you've been asked about this a ton, but you obviously you're the son of, of an absolute legend in Randy, the natural couture. Uh, I'm sure it had both its perks and its challenges uh, involved in, in that, but what made you want to give up a potential career, you know, which again, you're, you're in business now, but what made you want to kind of give that up and take on what had to be a lot of pressure in terms of expectations and following your father's famous footsteps into to MMA? Oh man, that's a, uh, probably not a real short answer for you. That's but, fine. Uh, we, we got some time. Um, so yeah, I went to Western Washington university after I graduated high school and, and thought I had left my athletic career behind. Um, spent uh spent my college years getting wildly out of shape <laughs> um, and then finished got that math degree didn't really have a 
a great sense of direction of what I wanted to do. So got a job at a local bank up in Bellingham where, where I had gone to school and, and just figured that was a place to start. Um, and then during the course of that job at the bank, ran into some old high school wrestling acquaintances and, and they were like, Hey man, you should come, you know, hit the mats with us. We're doing jujitsu at the local gold's gym on Sundays. Um, and thought I'd give that a try was, was kind of finally starting to take care of myself again after, after a few years of, uh, <laughs> getting fat. Um, and, uh, as soon as I started training with those guys, it became my favorite part of the week. And, and I just fell in love with, with training again. And, uh, one of the coaches that was there at those kind of loose Sunday jujitsu sessions opened a gym. So I signed up there and started training more, more consistently learning some kickboxing as well. Um, and I've been doing that for about a year when dad reached out and said that the gym was expanding and they were looking to hire some extra people and thought, why not try family first? Um, I didn't really feel like I had a lot of great reason to stay in Bellingham. So thought I was ready for a change of scenery and, and came to work for the family business. And I think being around the sport at the level that I was, you know, especially during that time, we kind of talked about how, you know, this would have been 2008, just how the sport was different. Everything was new and exciting then. And, and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, kind of was the good old days and, and it was an exciting time to be around that. And I was getting to see, you know, day in and day out guys like, you know, obviously my dad, but then Jay Haran, Martin Campman, Tyson Griffin, all these guys training for big fights and, and, uh, getting to train a little bit with those guys and learn from them. I just really fell in love with it and, and decided that I wanted to at least give an amateur fight a try and see what I thought. And first time I got in there and competed, I was hooked. It's, you know, there's nothing like it. I'm sure any fighter you ever talk to will say it's, it's addictive and, and, uh, you're constantly chasing that high from the first time you do it. <laughs> sometimes doing it, chasing it too long after its expiration date. Yeah. So it, so it sounds like it wasn't so much that, Oh, it was just kind of a, a forgive the, the pun, but kind of a natural progression to, you know, <laughs> being around it, it and just, you know, being hooked. It really sounds like it didn't have a lot to do with, with your dad or wanting to continue the legacy or, you know, or anything like that. Yeah. I mean, growing up, I was always super into martial arts movies and, you know, would watch every Van Damme flick that came out and, uh, so then when I heard about the UFC before dad even started competing, I thought it was really interesting to kind of see that stuff in real life. Um, so I always had an interest and then obviously dad getting involved made me a super fan. So I followed the sport very closely for a lot of years. And, and uh, so it was sort of surreal going from that to then working in the industry and then competing myself um, to get it kind of took a while for me to get around being a fanboy and, and convince myself like, Oh, I belong here and I do this too now. Yeah. Okay. Well, you, you had a very successful amateur career and then you, you turned pro, uh, you, you, you had a good run with strike force. You came into this final card and I want to talk, um, we're, I want to talk about the fight and talk about strategy and what happened during the fight, but then also talk about what it was like competing for strike force and going into that final card. I believe everybody knew that was the final event. I don't think that was a, a secret. Everybody knew that the promotion was going to fold after that, which is, that's gotta be a really weird kind of mindset. Uh, so I, we'll delve, delve into that, but let's talk about the fight itself. So you were matched up with KJ Nunes. That's a big name. I mean, this elite former elite XC lightweight champion guy who had main evented strike force events, had the feud with Nick Diaz. He had fought Jorge Masvidal, who, which is didn't, didn't mean as much then as it means now, but it's still a really, really good fighter. Josh Thompson, former uh, strike force lightweight champion. So this is a very seasoned, you know, pro boxing, pro kickboxing. I mean, one of the best stand-up guys in the lighter weight classes and would, you know, he would go to war with you like pretty much every fight was a war. So this was a big 
a big step up for you. I mean, you were on a three fight win streak, but again, this is a big guy. So what or a big, a big time guy. So what was your, your mindset heading into the, the fight was the idea not to get overwhelmed by the moment. Did you feel ready? Kind of what was your mindset going into it? I feel like a big part of that training camp was almost convincing myself that I belonged in the cage with KJ. Like I, I knew that history from, I had watched him fight before. I think I had ever even fought an amateur fight myself. So he was someone I was familiar with and, and kind of looked up to coming up. And, and, uh, so a big part of that training camp was just getting in my head that like, Hey, I'm, I'm here for a reason. And, and I belong in this fight and I can win this fight. Um, you know, game plan wise, obviously the goal was not to stand and strike with that guy. <laughs> um, <laughs> kind of got away really... a little, got a little bit away from that during the fight. <laughs> yeah. Which we'll was, get to uh, that sort of a, a something I look back on my career and I ended up throwing hands with a lot of people. I should have uh, made more of a point not to, but uh, um, fortunately this time it worked out. Okay. Um, but yeah. So, you know, we worked a lot of trying to cut the cage, maybe some, some strikes that I could hit him with and some things I could, could, uh, could, you know, hold my ground in the standup, even though, you know, he had a lot more experience in that regard. And obviously my goal always at least in theory was to put people on the ground and, and try to submit them or, or pound them out. But, um, turns out that's easier said than done. <laughs> yeah. He, he, he tended to be able to keep a fight standing if that's what he wanted to do. Uh, KJ had excellent takedown defense. Uh, so yeah. which you didn't really go for a whole lot during the fight anyways, but uh, he just seemed to be able to draw his opponents into his type of fight. And I, I mean, he was definitely a killer be killed guy. And, and, you know, I mean, his, I think his final career record was like 13 and nine, 12 and nine, something like that. So it's not like he was ultimately successful with it a lot of times, but uh, he, he could really draw you into a war. And that's really what this, this ended up being. I, I wanted to ask about um, your father's involvement. We'll talk specifically about this fight. Was he heavily involved with your training for this fight? He was there in your corner. Was he, uh, you know, a big part of the strategy? Was he more there to tell you off and, you know, ice you down? Like what, what, what was his level of involvement both, getting ready for the fight and then for the fight itself. Yeah, he was there for a lot of that training camp. And, and uh, I believe it was the the previous fight I had had on the uh, Rousey versus Tate card against Connor Hewn. That was mm-hmm. sort of my first big step up in competition mm-hmm. to a more established uh, opponent. Um, and I think that was kind of the point where dad felt like it was his, his time to step in and, and uh, have more of a presence in, in the training room. He had kind of hung back and, and waited for me to come to him previously, but um but, uh, you know, I think once the level of those opponents started coming up, he made it a point to, you know, we'd sit down at the beginning of training camp and kind of plan out what the schedule was going to be. And, you know, he was very involved in, in all the game planning and, and uh, would make it to as many of those training sessions as he could. Obviously, his uh, travel schedule is always a challenge to keep up with. But, I'm sure. but yeah, he was he was much more involved in, in those two training camps and then the ones that came after as well. Okay. Um, well, so turning back to the fight, you know, we already mentioned that, uh, can KJ being such a stand-up fighter, the entire first round ended up being contested on the feet. So it sounds like that wasn't really your plan necessarily. Was there something specific that, you know, grabbed you and made you like not want to go for a takedown where you felt like, man, I can hang with this guy. Or was it just kind of just the natural progression of the fight? He kind of, like I said, had a knack for keeping fight standing, even if you know, the opponent's strategy might not have gone that way. What do you, is there anything that jumps out in your mind as far as why you decided to stand with him? Um, yeah, I don't think it was as much of a conscious decision as just, that was kind of the way the fight played out. You know, he uses his feet well and, and manage distance well. So I don't think I ever felt like I had a, 
a good chance to shoot a shot. I'm not a big, you know, open shot, you know, blast double leg takedown kind of guy either. Uh, so for me, if I can't kind of cut the cage and get, get a clinch and, and work from there and kind of grind my way to the ground, I have a hard time. So I think he just, he just did a good job kind of controlling the geography and not letting me corner him to get my hands on him. And if we did clinch up at all, he was good about getting inside control and, and creating space and not accepting the clinch. So, you know, that's something that's, that's tough to overcome. If a guy doesn't want to engage with you in the grappling, it's hard to make him do that. Mm -hmm. um, if you don't have that, you know, Mike Chandler explosive athleticism, which I certainly don't, uh, to just blow a guy off his feet. Um, yeah. okay. so and credit to credit to KJ for, for knowing how to avoid those situations. And, you know, maybe a bit of my inexperience, not knowing how to force them as well as I needed to, to, to really give myself an advantage there. Yeah. I, and that makes a lot of sense. I, the other thing that I noticed in that first round was that KJ wasn't really setting up his strikes very much. He was throwing it, loading up and throwing a lot of like one punch type, you know, trying to go for the, the, the knockout, maybe not having the combinations doesn't open or helps him to not be in position to be taken down a lot. So maybe that had kind of factored in a little bit, but regardless, you show that you're able to stand with a world-class level striker in that first round. The second round is where things got really a lot more exciting and a lot more, a lot more interesting. Uh, you appeared to accidentally headbutt noons, which cut him open. He, man, that guy could bleed like, like, like a pro wrestler. He got <laughs> that crimson mask a lot of the time. Uh, but he got, it was what? That was a bad gash in his forehead. It yeah. Put him, him good. It was nasty. It was nasty. And he was bleeding pretty badly. Uh, you saw that and being the, you know, you're supposed to go after that. And you, and you did. Uh, Nunes was able to withstand and he actually returned fire, hurt you pretty badly in that round. You survived the onslaught, got him back with a good knee. So a lot of really great back and forth, really hard uh, to score that round, to be quite honest with, with you. But had you been in trouble in a fight to that level before this fight, was that like a learning experience for you? Talk a little bit about what it was like to, uh, you know, be in that situation. You got cut a guy accidentally, but cut him really badly. He hurts you. You hurt him back. Was that a good learning experience for you in your career? Uh, it certainly was a, you know, gave me the confidence that I was, that I was tough and I could hang in there in those blood and gut situations. And you know, that I had a chin on me and, and could keep fighting through adversity. I know I had had my bell rung in previous fights and been wobbled a little bit, but never, never that bad to where I was almost out on my feet. Um, so I think weathering that storm and, and fighting him off me and, and surviving that round and, and then, still having gas in the tank to come back and, and fight the, the third round as well was, was a big confidence booster for me. Let me know kind of what I'm made of. Okay. Well, big, I mean, the crowd definitely recognized that you both were really laying it out there. Big roar from the crowd at the end of the second round. And in my estimation, it looked even at the end of, uh, at the end of the two rounds uh, going into that final round. Was there anything specific that stands out in terms of strategy? Just more of the same or, you know, thinking, man, I do, do need to go takedowns, whether it, it happens or not. Uh, was there anything that kind of comes back to mind as far as heading into that final round, what, what you felt like you needed to do? Uh, I, I think I was just kind of on autopilot at that point, yeah. you know, being, you know, as the, the pace we were fighting at being as tired as I would have been going into that round. And then also being so, so hurt, my head certainly wasn't clear enough to be making a lot of tactical adjustments. So <laughs> I think it was just bite down on the mouth, mouthpiece and get through this next yeah. round. Okay. try to come out with limbs somehow what you did. And we'll, we'll talk about that. I, I had uh, both Josh Thompson and Gilbert Melendez on uh, a few episodes ago to talk about their trilogy. Both of them still feel that they've won the final fight in the, in the trilogy. I have yet <laughs> to interview a fighter that was on the winning side of a controversial decision that didn't feel that they won. 
uh, you know, the fight, every fight, you know, I mean, not saying every fighter feels like they've won every fight, obviously not, but uh, this was very close. This was a razor thin, you know, very close fight. Noons was, uh, you guys seem to be showing respect right after the bell, but then Noons, when they announced it, you know, that you had won, he was extremely frustrated, leaves the cage. The camera showed him on, you know, he was very, very angry. Uh, Pat Militich on commentary felt like he felt that that Noons had won the fight. Uh, Frank and Morrow didn't say one way or the other how they, they felt about it. But obviously it was one of those fights where it really could have gone either way. Looking back now, how do you feel about it? Do you feel like it was a clear cut decision for you? Did you, I mean, what are your thoughts now looking back? I don't think it was clear cut either way. Um, I think you could almost flip a coin in a fight like that. Um, you look at the way that the, that they're scoring fights now, I think probably the damage he did would have been considered more effective striking and they'd probably give him the decision these days, but you know, it, it was a close fight. It could, could have gone either way. I think, uh, I got, I got credit for being more active. A lot of the, a lot of that fight, he was hanging back. I think he thought he was just going to spark me and be done and, and maybe didn't take me as seriously as he needed to. Um, so I think that led him not to have as much output. So I think my volume, even though it might not have been as effective is why the judges barely leaned in my favor. Um, but I, I think it's a solid argument either way. I still have people on Twitter for whatever reason, randomly call me out and tell me I lost that fight, <laughs> whatever, it was, 10 years ago now. Yeah. Let it go guys. Let it go. Still salty about that one. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, KJ was livid. I remember getting backstage to get checked out by the doctors and hearing him on the other side of the curtain, just screaming and ranting up a storm about the judges and this and that. And uh yeah he was he was pissed he probably still wouldn't talk to me to this uh, day which i was gonna it. i was gonna ask you if you guys have ever had any any conversation or anything about that i don't think i've even run into him or spoken to him since okay well he's really chill now by the by the way we i, I interviewed <laughs> him for the podcast he's a firefighter down in uh, socal and he's doing great um he's actually oh, that's I, awesome you didn't actually come up during the, the that interview again we've been going sequentially so i generally don't ask about fights that happened after the event that we're discussing. So we didn't talk about that. We talked about the Connor Hune fight, which was also a very close fight for him, uh, opponent that you both had in common. And uh, he's still a little, he's, he's cool with it now, but he said, uh, Connor busted his rib and he said his rib still kind of sticks out. Uh, so he's like, that's like one of his memories. So he, I think that may stick out in his mind more than, you know, losing that, <laughs> that fight to you, but for whatever, whatever reason, well, I but, think my nose is a little crooked from, uh, from the KJ fight. So. Okay. Well, there you go. Well, if it ever comes up, you'd be like, all right, well, maybe I got the win, but I've, you, you've got, you've still got the residual damage from it, I guess. So, but you definitely proved some things in that fight. You proved that you've got a chin. You proved that you could survive the blood and guts. You, you know, I, I mean, obviously cardio is a, like, that's just never going to be an issue with a couture. I mean, it, like that's just never going to be something. So, uh, and you showed that you can strike, you know, again, you're thinking people are thinking you're going to come in and just wrestle, uh, but you showed yourself to be well-rounded and be able to hang with a world-class striker like that. So, I mean, win or lose, you, you had to look at this as a victory. So looking back, you got the win, but even more so the moral victory or the, you know, being able to prove yourself. So again, looking back, what did this mean to you? What did this, there's a huge step up in competitions. We discussed, what did it mean to you get, to get a win over a former world champion like KJ Dunes? Uh, I think it just further solidified in my mind that I belonged at that level, that I belonged on that platform that, you know, I think, uh, I think I struggled with sort of imposter syndrome for a long time and, and, uh, and getting in there with somebody of that caliber and, you know, whether you think I won the fight or not, 
going the distance with him and having a competitive fight that could go to even a split decision was, was a big deal for me. And, Mm -hmm. and just gave me the confidence rolling into what was going to come after that to to know that I belonged where I was. Yeah. As I said, definitely proved all that. So it was a, not only did you get your hand raised, but even if you'd lost, it would have been a big, a big step up and a big victory for you. So, um, but yeah, great fight. I enjoyed it, especially that second round. It was a fun fight to watch. I, I, I definitely enjoyed it. So, uh, but I did want to ask, you know, I mentioned this earlier that obviously this was the f- very final strike force event you had compete. This was your seventh time competing for the promotion. You were, you know, you're one of only a select group of fighters that would fight on the final, uh, you know, event for strike force strike force was at one point, even though we've really well established during this podcast that strike force was never really a competitor for the UFC. When you look at the, the gates and the ratings, and I mean, it, it just like, I mean, lower level UFC cards that are pulling in million dollar gates and strike force barely got that maybe a couple of times. So it's, they were never really, you know, any real competition between the two promotions, except for maybe signing fighters. And that was really about it. So as much as it pains me to admit that that is, that is the case, but yet it is still a very important uh, promotion. It gave rise to women's MMA on a level that had never been seen before. And you can make a case that, uh, if if it hadn't been for Strike Force, that Dana White never would have come across Ronda Rousey, and we never would have seen women's MMA become the you know the stalwart part of the MMA world that it is today. Uh, you know, a lot of fighters that have gone on to great success in the UFC, champions like Luke Rockhold and you know Daniel Cormier win the Grand Prix that went on and had great careers in the UFC and won titles there. There's you know a lot of crossover, obviously. So uh, there's there's you know is it was a successful promotion even if it wasn't on the level that, you know, some of us that are, you know, the hardcores remember it necessarily as. So all of that said, you being a part of, you know, kind of towards the end of the promotion, what did it mean to to you to fight on the final card? Was it weird at all knowing you were fighting on the final card? Did you know at that point you were going to go to the UFC? Kind of talk about the the mental side of it, like from a business standpoint, going into that card. Uh, I think I was just honored and excited to be a part of, of, you know, such a, what I knew was an important card that, you know, it kind of, as you just recapped, Strike Force may not have been a financial competitor, but I think clearly they were enough of a thorn in the UFC side that they needed to buy them up and, and absorb them. And, you know, they contributed a lot to the sport and changed, changed the landscape of the sport in the time that the promotion was around. And, you know, I'll always have a soft spot for it just because that was where I started my pro career. And, you know, you can always look back on your first as, as being special. Uh, <laughs> So, in, in, uh, in, in many facets of life, right? <laughs> <laughs> yep. So, uh, yeah, I, I just, that was such a fun, exciting time for me, you know, starting my career that I'll, I'll always have a special place in my heart for, for strike force. And, you know, it was, it was an honor to be on that card and to be matched up with an opponent like that. And, and, uh, it just was a, it was a, it had a big event feel to it. It was in a great venue, uh, Oklahoma city turned out to be a lot more fun than I would have expected. Uh, so everything about that, I, I remember fondly and, and I'm just really happy I got to be a part of it. Uh, I still, to this day, always cheer for the strike force guy. If you know any of the guys I remember from back There's then, only, only a handful of them left that are still uh, competing at this point. It's been fun seeing Bobby green have a lot of success mm-hmm. recently. That's a guy that I almost ended up matched up with that in hindsight, it's probably a good thing that didn't happen. <laughs> um, so yeah, I just, nothing but good things to say about my strike force experience. Yeah. I, I, again, that's, just, I mean, not everybody had, uh, you know, that Alistair Overeem had a pretty nasty breakup with them. And, but for the most part, everybody has great things to say about Scott Coker and strike force and rich Chow and, you know, and all, and Javier and Bob and all those guys. So it was, uh, 
it was a great time. And, and as, I mean, you know, there's Derek Brunson, there's Lorenz Larkin, there's, you know, Alistair is still, I guess, technically out there, but that, you know, it's as we get 10 year, almost 10 years past the, uh, the end of the promotion, obviously guys are going to be going to be done. So there's really only a select few left, but as you said, I, I always pull for, you know, if there's a strike force guy in there, even guys like Michael Chandler, who I don't even know if you know, but he competed twice in strike force early on his yep. career. So yeah, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm always going to pull for my, my strike force people and Amanda Nunez fought twice in the promotion. So uh, yeah, I'm always going to pull for them. Cause I, you know, we got that, that bond. So we got just a few more questions and then I'm gonna let you go, but I did want to ask, uh, kind of give us an update on what you're up to. I, I know that in, uh, you were named the new CEO of extreme couture taking over for your father. Uh, and then in 2020, you and your, uh, that was back in 2020. And then last year, 2021, you and your wife had your first child and which has made it uh, challenging for us to find time to be able to sit down and, and talk, but you know, lots going on in your world. Uh, Extreme Couture is doing very well, home of Francis Ngannou and, and named Jim of the year last year and all that stuff. So kind of give us an update on, on what you're going, you know, what's going on with you. If you want to mention your social media handles, anything you want to promote, uh, you know, please, we're, we're all ears. Well, it was a f- fun time in 2020, right in the middle of, uh, of COVID lockdown for dad to hand the business over to me. So that's- <laughs> Thanks dad. <laughs> <laughs> I'll forever will bust his balls for that, but uh, it's been uh, amazing. Such an honor to, to kind of be at the helm there and, and a uh, huge learning curve to get my head around a lot of the administrative stuff that, you know, I used to get to show up and get on the mat and train and coach and do all the fun parts. Now I'm sitting in the, sitting in the office, staring at a screen most of the time, <laughs> uh, but it's been going really well. You know, um, 2020 was a tough year for us, but we hit the ground running in 21 and um, Eric Nixick, uh, my, my GM and head coach and best friend has, has just been crushing it with the fight team and, you know, drawing so many top level fighters, you know, seeing, seeing the heavyweight title come back to the gym was really special. And, and, uh, I'm so proud of what he's accomplished with the fight team and what we've been able to build together with the business is, is really exciting. Um, so, so definitely, uh, you know, check us out xcmma.com and, and, uh, xcmma on Instagram, uh, xc underscore MMA on Twitter. Um, but yeah, keep up with the gym. That's really all I'm up to now. And, and, uh, you know, as you mentioned, I had my first, my first son, uh, and that's a whole new adventure by far the most fun thing I've ever gotten to do. So I'm trying to do as much of my work as I can from home so I can chase him around and, and just see him grow up is, has been really special for me. When does his first training camp start? <laughs> if the, uh, if the COVID would hurry up and go away, I'd start bringing it to the gym now there you <laughs> go. all around on the mats. So. There you go. <laughs> but still in germaphobe mode, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. I hear you. All right. Well, I get, I, I do have to ask one final question about your career, but I, I, before we get to that, I have to ask. So I'm a big uh, pro wrestling fan. We were talking about a little, little bit about this before we started recording, but on the recent AEW revolution pay-per-view, they mentioned that uh, both John Moxley and Brian Danielson, who were matched up on that night have trained with extreme couture. So I'm just curious uh, if you have any insight to share about that. I mean, obviously scripted and you know, it's different, but uh, how do you feel like these guys come into the gym and training, you know, training MMA helps, does it help them in terms of processing a lot of, you know, Samoa Joe, there's like a lot of pro wrestlers out there, uh, Kyle O'Reilly that, that, you know, incorporate, uh, elements of MMA or elements of, you know, different, different parts of, uh, of MMA into their pro wrestling repertoire and character, that sort of thing. How do you see that kind of crossover in terms of, of training? Is there anything specific on Mox or Danielson that you can share? would just love to hear, to hear your point of view, basically. Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, first off, I'm a big fan of both of those guys are, they're, they're awesome human beings. And we're always really 
are, are always really fun to have in the gym. Um, Brian used to come actually back in my strike force days and he would train with my grappling coach, Neil Melanson back then. Um, and I said that was before he really made it big and yeah. in wrestling. So, um, I think that his character and the, and the moves that he uses in there are a lot of them are based on that, that catch wrestling and the, the submission stuff that he did at our gym. So, uh, and I'm seeing more of that in pro wrestling as, as MMA gets more popular, I think to kind of keep up and because more and more fans know what a real fight looks like, you kind of have to be able to simulate those techniques and, you know, obviously add some flair to them, make them more fun. But, but, uh, you know, I think the more, you know, about real fighting, the better you're going to be able to, to perform in, in a pro wrestling environment, um, with just the way that the, the audience has changed. And, um, so I think it's a huge benefit for those guys to be cross training and, 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 uh, learning those, those different techniques and, and being able to make things look a little more gritty and real when they're in the, in the ring. Um, yeah. so yeah, let's see where did I leave off at Moxley? Uh, he, uh, first showed up ooh, probably five, six years ago. Now I remember seeing him. I didn't know who he was. He came into my MMA class when I was still teaching a couple times a week and was just there, I think picking up some extra stuff to use in his wrestling career. And then he's, uh, gotten really close with Gil Guardado, our, our uh, strength and conditioning coach. Um, and he's one of our MMA coaches as well. He came up through our amateur programs, one of my favorite uh, training partners over the years. And uh, I think those two have really hit it off and have a good relationship and do their, you know, they do Mox's strength work and they do a lot of you know, grappling and wrestling and MMA training together as well. And, uh, and I think that's become a big part of, of kind of his preparation routine for, for his career as well. It's, you know, it's interesting because you've seen, um, I, 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 there's guys like Brian Danielson that, and Moxley will use like the Muay Thai plum and, and that sort of thing. They'll incorporate parts of it. And I think they do that very effectively. There's guys that have tried to make it all, you know, MMA and, and have tried that a few times and that just doesn't work. And then if you take an MMA technique technique and you try to pro wrestling eyes it, like for example, uh, undertaker had the, the hell's gate, which was essentially kind of like a combination triangle slash uh, omoplata. And it was like anybody that knew MMA that so I was like, Nope, like that's not how that goes at all. And you're <laughs> all you would have to do is turn your head, you know, like that. So there's, but I, I being an MMA fan, I love it. Like I love, you know, Brock obviously is just like, like looks like it could kill you no matter what. So there's guys that can do it effectively and make it look really good. And then, you know, here and there, there's guys that have tried it and kind of failed, but I think it's been overall, I think it's a big, been a good thing for the sport. It just makes it seem more real and gritty to your, to your point. So um, I appreciate that insight. So uh, one final question, and then we'll let you go, but you ended up again, going six and one in strike force. Is, is it the KJ Nunes fight? What if, if, you know, fans ask like, what's, what fight stands out to you? Is there a moment or anything that stands out to you as far as your time in strike force or one particular fight that stands out and why it's important to you? Just give us kind of a highlight that you would, you'd close us out with. Uh, I think the, the Connor Hume fight is probably my whole career. My, my highlight, my favorite fight that I look back on where, you know, it was a big step up in competition and, and uh, you know, they had a little extra weight on the training camp because of it. It's my first time on a non challengers event. Um, and then that fight, couldn't have gone more perfect to a T. So it's not often in your career. I think that's the one and only time in mind that I literally everything we trained went to, went to plan. And, and, and it was just a perfect, you know, felt like the flawless victory almost for me. <laughs> flawless victory. <laughs> so, uh, so I think that's the one that still 
I look back on the, the most fondly, but, but the noons fight was probably a close second, just, okay. you know, a, a blood and guts war like that. And to come away with the win over, over such an established name was, was a huge boost for me. Awesome. Well, Ryan, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Uh, it's just great insight, you know, and, and congratulations on being the final fighter to, uh, to appear on this podcast, but, uh, <laughs> appreciate you taking the time to do this. This has been a lot of fun and, uh, yeah, thank you for your insights. My pleasure. And thank you so much. I think it's, uh, it's really cool. You guys are giving strike force some shine that it, that it much deserves. All right. I want to thank my very special guest, Ryan Couture, for taking the time to be with me on Inside the Hexagon. It was a very interesting look at the final days of Strikeforce, what it was like going into that final card. And then, of course, the strategy and the learning that came along with having a, that type of fight with with uh, KJ Noons. And I appreciate Ryan jumping into all of that. Much appreciated. But man, this is just about it. We only got one more episode to go. Our final episode is going to run next week. And and that is going to be a farewell to Strike Force. I'm really excited about this. We actually just recorded it. Uh, Josh and I go through the highlights of Strike Force, talk about you know the the first card over 18,000 people. Uh, there in attendance at the Shark Tank, and then Shamrock versus Lee, Shamrock versus Diaz. Uh, we talk about uh, some of the the highlights of the, the heavyweight Grand Prix. We talk about some of the biggest knockouts in Strike Force history, and then we've got some really cool little surprises in there. Uh, several fighters and personalities and journalists submitted short clips that we included within it, and then we wrap things up with uh, really the most apropos, most fitting way to 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 you know kind of <laughs> go out and into the sunset on a high note and that is a 20 minute chat between me and scott coker the the founder the promoter the guy that says that strike force was his baby we talk about the highlights for him the biggest fights and fighters that stand out and it, it, again it's just i can't think of a better way to to wrap things up uh but so i hope that you're looking forward to that but with that we're going to go ahead and ride off into the sunset we hope that you stay safe and you stay healthy and we will see you soon Hey there, and welcome to the Joy of Paddle podcast, hosted by me, Minter Dial, a veteran of the paddle tennis world, and sponsored by Paddle 1969. Whether you're a paddle tennis aficionado, just beginning, or have never even heard of paddle, or padel, as it's called in North America, this is an exhilarating new show that delves into the captivating stories of notable paddle personalities worldwide. In its inaugural season, you'll be treated to exclusive anecdotes, valuable tips, life lessons, and humorous moments shared by esteemed professional paddle players, industry insiders, and passionate paddle enthusiasts. With each season aligning with the Pro Tour, you can anticipate two engaging episodes per month. The Joy of Paddle Podcast is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, where you can find other great shows in a number of categories, such as sports, health and wellness, true crime, and fiction. To find out more about Evergreen Podcasts, go to www.evergreenpodcast.com. Vamos! Vamos!